Good morning, church family. Uh, it's great to be with you. Um, Thanksgiving coming up this week, and uh, just like anything else during this season of COVID, it will probably be unlike any other Thanksgiving we've had. So I want to encourage all of you to be safe and to enjoy um, the time that you have with the folks that you'll be able to spend time with. Um, we are picking up our sermon series. Uh, we took a couple of weeks off to talk about what it means to engage politics as a follower of Jesus, but we're picking back up our sermon series, The Unseen Battle, as we talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, I, I want to recommend some books and resources. This isn't all of it. I will probably have some sort of a list of books that you guys that are interested in going deeper into this topic could look at. So among others, um, and again, We'll make this available on our website somewhere. Uh, one is this book, Spiritual, uh, Victory in Spiritual Warfare by a pastor named Tony Evans. Um, here's another one, Breaking Strongholds, How Spiritual Warfare Sets Captives Free by Tom White. And then third is this book right here, Neil T. Anderson and Timothy Warner, The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Warfare. Uh, Neil Anderson is someone that's actually been profoundly influential in terms of uh, how I've understood spiritual warfare. And... Timothy Warner uh, is also someone who's been influential. Uh, I remember taking a, a class while I was in seminary, this is early 90s, uh, that was taught by Timothy Warner, who had uh, a number of years he served out in the mission field, was a pastor, and he offered this class on spiritual warfare. Now at the time, um, I was somewhat familiar with the topic of spiritual warfare, but uh, wasn't really theologically and biblically grounded. And taking that class taught by Timothy Warner was absolutely eye-opening and foundational for me. Um, and, and, and in that class, he shared this story uh, that I want to I wanna, uh, share with you. He shared this story that, that, I mean, it's been over 25 more years, but it's still so vivid in my mind when he told this story. A missionary who was serving <laughs> as a medic in Africa tells his story. Periodically, he had to travel by bicycle through the jungle to nearby city for supplies. It was a two-day trip, so he would camp in the jungle overnight. He'd always made the trip without incident, but one day, he arrived in the city and saw two men fighting. One was seriously hurt, so he treated the man, shared Christ with him, and went on his way. The next time the missionary traveled into the city, the man he had treated approached him. He said, I, I know you carry money and medicine, the man said to the missionary. Some friends and I followed you into the jungle that night after you treated me, knowing you'd have to sleep in the jungle alone. So we waited for you to go to sleep, planning to kill you and take your money and drugs. As we started to move into the campsite, we saw... 26 armed guards surrounding you. Now, there were only six of us, so we knew we couldn't possibly get near, and so we left. Uh, when he heard this, the missionary laughed. That's impossible. I assure you, I was alone in the campsite. But the young man pressed the point. No, sir, I, was the only, uh, I wasn't the only one who saw the guards. My friends saw them, too. And we all counted them. And several months later, the missionary attended his home church in Michigan and told of his experience. A man in the congregation abruptly interrupted his presentation by jumping to his feet and saying something that left the entire congregation stunned. With a firm voice, he said, We were with you in spirit. And the missionary looked perplexed. The man continued, Now on that night in Africa, it was morning here. I stopped by the church to get some materials for a ministry trip. But as I was putting my bags in my trunk, I felt the Lord leading me to pray for you. It was an extremely strong urge prompting. So I got on the phone and I gathered some other men to come to the church and pray for you. Then the man turned to the rest of the congregation. And he said, will all of those men who prayed with me that day stand up right now? 
And one by one, they stood up. All 26 of them. I'll, I'll never forget that. It's, it's this visual that's etched in my mind forever. And it began for me this journey of understanding and realizing what we've been talking about. There is an invisible world that's just as real as this visible world. That, that, that what happens in the invisible world, furthermore, directly impacts what happens in the visible world. And as we've been saying, we don't, we don't have to convince people of that reality these days, do we? Do, do, there's, a, there's a world for months we've known that we can't see with the naked human eye a world of viruses that's infected millions of people, killed hundreds and thousands of people, upended entire global economies, and devastated entire communities. We don't have to be convinced into believing that not what we see, what we see is not all there is to be seen. We are involved, we are engaged, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, in an unseen battle, Christian, with the real enemy. Jesus talked about this enemy quite a bit, actually. A quarter, do you know the quarter of his interactions and teachings and parables dealt with Satan, the devil, and the demonic John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This is what he's about. I have come, though, that they may have life and have it abundantly. The lines are drawn. God's intention, God's intention for you is to experience life, life abundant. God's intention for you and me is for you to know that you are loved and that God delights, for you, delights in you. God's intention for you and me is that he has a work for us, a purpose for us to make a tangible difference, a tangible impact in our world. But there is also a real enemy, the devil. With the host of fallen angels, an army of demons who also have intentions and purposes. And they are to destroy God's creation, to discredit and thwart the cause and the movement of Christ, and to make your life and my life one of constant defeat, discouragement, disillusionment, and misery. Listen. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare you. But there needs to be, for some of us, a major paradigm shift in how we see the world. The world isn't a playground. The world is a battlefield. And the Christian life, Christian, is a fight. It's a fight. It's a fight. To be born of God is to be made citizen in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, make no mistake about it, is at war. Do not confuse this kingdom with paradise. Salvation is not re-entry into paradise lost. Salvation is enlistment in a war against powers and against principalities. But the good news is, is that you don't have to be afraid of the devil. Is that good news? Yes. He's a powerful adversary that needs to be taken seriously. But Satan is a defeated foe. This, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil on the cross, securing both our salvation and Satan's doom. There is no suspense in the kingdom of God about how this all ends, is there? No. We don't have to fear the enemy. If you're walking, this is important for today. If you're walking in your identity in Christ, if you're walking in your position and the privileges that you have in Christ, Satan has no authority over you. None. None. He has zero authority over you. There is no reason to fear him. But we need to take him seriously. 
The first step in this unseen battle is becoming aware of the battle, right? So that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about, if we're talking about how to become aware of the battle, because if you and I don't know that we're in a battle to begin with, then we're toast. We're toast. So in Ephesians 6, which has been our anchoring passage, the Apostle Paul lays out for us what the battle is, who the enemy is, where the battle is fought, and how to fight this battle so you and I could experience victory. So we're going to jump in to Ephesians 6. Now, <laughs> give you a heads up. Today's sermon is going to be packed okay there's going to be tons of scripture so take careful notes so that you could we listen to this sermon and dig deeper into the passages that i'm going to share today okay so with that warning we're jumping in ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 so finally be strong in the lord and in his mighty power Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. The Greek word is methodeia, from which we get the English word methods, tactics of the enemy. The word devil in the Greek is literally the word diabolos, and the verb form of that literally means to lie or to slander. At the core of his DNA, what is the devil? He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And the reason why that's important is because the battleground for this unseen battle, we've been saying, is in between our ears. The battleground, the battlefield, is for our minds. The attack from the enemy is for your mind. It's for your belief system regarding God, regarding what you think about you, regarding what you think about other people, regarding what you think about life. Satan knows what we and I believe will impact our emotions, and our emotions will impact our behavior. Satan knows better than anybody else what you believe will impact your emotions, which will impact how you and I behave. I was talking to somebody yesterday, and I realized that one of the lies that the enemy has been using in the midst of COVID is this lie. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough as a mom. You're not doing enough. You're not good enough. Why aren't you doing more? Why can't you do better? You're not enough, dad. You're not enough, pastor. You're not enough, life group leader, micro group leader. You're not enough. You're not enough. Why can't you do more? Why can't you do better? Why can't you? Do you hear the lies? Do you hear the whispers? Remember how we talked about the way Satan works is he can't read your mind. He's not omniscient. But what he does is he watches you carefully. He studies you 24-7, which means he knows the self-talk that goes through our minds. He knows that you're prone to perfectionism. He knows that you're prone to condemnation. And so Satan comes. And then when you sing a note, the string, on the, uh, string on, the on the piano vibrates. He knows what strings to vibrate. He knows what notes to sing. Christian, are you believing the lie that says, I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The struggle of conflict is not a material issue. If all that you see is what you see, then you'll never see all that there is to be seen. The flesh and blood behind addictions. Please listen. The, the flesh and blood behind addictions and conflict and racism and war is not just flesh and blood. It's not just about him, about her, about them, about systems and institutions. Verse 13, therefore, in other words, in light of the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on, in light of the fact that your life is a war zone. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. It's a command. And why is that important? Because God is saying, you and I are responsible to put the armor on. 
God will not put the armor on for you. You and I are responsible to put it on. God has provided the armor. He's provided everything that we need. But he will not put it on for you. Paul talks about this throughout the New Testament, right? Things like, work out your salvation. For it is God who is at work in you. Paul says, it's you and I, we need to put the armor on. And the idea, the, the verb tense is the idea of urgency. You need to do it now. So it needs to be a top priority. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and the word literally evil day means on a particular day at a particular time. Particular day, particular time. Mark chapter 4, we find this incredibly insightful passage where, where after Satan tempts Jesus, it says, and at the end, and Satan departed from him, after the temptation that is, until a more opportune time opportunity, evil day. In other words, in different seasons at different times, you and I are more vulnerable to the enemy. There are times when you and I are going to be at the top of our game, so the enemy will wait. He'll watch you very carefully, seasons, cycles, looking for times when he knows you're weak and you're vulnerable, maybe times when you're hungry or angry or lonely or tired. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Or it's when you've had a conflict with your spouse, third argument in that week, and there's a voice inside of you that says, I know you feel terrible. I know how to make you feel better. It's when the economy drops. It's when you lose your job. It's when you're sitting in the intensive care unit with your children or mom or dad, wondering if they're going to make it. It's when your girlfriend or boyfriend or a fiancé of years ends the relationship without any explanation. And then all of a sudden, you hear the whisper, you hear the voice that says, why would a good God let this happen? Why would a loving God do this to you. It's what a roaring lion does. He waits for our weakest moments. Now, I haven't shared this yet. I, I, I'll tell you when my day of evil, evil day comes. It actually comes for me after some of the most fruitful work for God. It comes after I've preached a sermon, talked to a number of people, I've prayed for people, and there's been a powerful move of God's spirit, and then I'll go home, I'm going to let you in a little bit. And all of a sudden, a dark wave of depression. A dark wave, a cloud of depression and disillusionment, condemnation, and bizarre thoughts will just, just, just sweep over me. And sometimes it's not for like two, three hours until I realize what's happening. Do you know? When you're most vulnerable? Do you know when the day of evil is? Do you know? Because the extent to which you know when you might be most vulnerable is the extent to which you might be more aware of what the enemy wants to do. Verse 13, so you may be able to, he says, stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand Verse 14, stand firm. Then three times Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Why? What's he saying? He's saying when we stand firm, we are holding on to our position that we already possess. Let me say that again. When we stand firm, we are holding on to our position our territory that we already possess by the virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection. See, there's, there, Satan knows that there's nothing that he can do to take back all this territory that Christ won for us. Nothing. There's nothing he can do f- about the fact that we've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and reborn into the kingdom of light. We've been redeemed. You've been sealed with the Spirit. You have an inheritance as a son or daughter of God. You are seated at the right hand of God with Christ. 
and you are loved more than you will ever be loved. This is your position. This is your identity. This is your privilege. And that will never, ever change. Satan knows that. He can't do anything about your position, your territory. But what he will do is he will do everything possible to make that relationship not what God wants it to be. A life without fulfillment, a life without purpose, a life without meaning, a life of discouragement and constant defeat. That's why Paul says, listen, listen, stand firm. Hold your position, Christian. Hold on to the territory that Christ already won for you. That's why spiritual warfare is about understanding your identity. Identity, identity, identity. That's why all of his letters, he spends all one half of it talking about who God is and who you are. You need to know who you are. You need to know what you have. You can stand firm because you're a child of God in Christ. And Satan can't do anything about that. So he'll do everything possible for you to live outside of who you already are and what you already have. So how then do we stand firm? This is what Paul says. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace verse 16 in addition to all this take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one verse 17 take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god now here's what we're going we're talking about today's title is dressed for battle it's going to be three parts We're going to spend three weeks on what it means to dress for battle and talk about each of these armor. But what I need to do today is I need to lay a foundation for you to understand what the armor of God is. Okay? And this is going to be a paradigm shift for some of you. A major paradigm shift. Three questions today. What is the armor of God? When do we put on the armor of God? And third, how do we put on each piece of the armor? What is the armor of God? How do we put on the armor of God? Uh, When do we put on the armor of God? And third, how do we put... Now, here's the first question. What is the armor of God? Actually, do you know the more correct question is? It's who is the armor of God? Paradigm shift. Here it comes. Who is the armor of God? Why do I say that? Because when you look at each of these pieces, it's Jesus. Jesus is the armor. Jesus is the armor of God. Each piece of the armor mentioned in Ephesians 6 is a depiction of who Jesus is. (laughs) This is, again, paradigm shift. And this is everything to understand how to dress for battle. You go, where do we find that? Belt of truth? John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth is not just a proposition. Truth is a person. Hello. Breastplate of righteousness? We go to the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, 6, and this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, uh, Isaiah 64, 6 says. But God, when you're in Christ, sees us as righteous as Christ. That's just incredible news. God sees us as righteous as Christ. So when the accuser says, you can't be a real Christian, we say what? We say what? I'm not saved because of my righteousness. It's like filthy rags. I'm saved because of his righteousness. I'm not saved by obedience. I'm saved by grace. Sins that are in my life can trouble me, but they can never condemn me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Buddha, the gospel of peace, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
Jesus Christ crushed the head of Satan for all time by his death and resurrection. But we are privileged to participate with Jesus in crushing the enemy's head in ongoing victory. Let's keep going. Shield of faith. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Helmet of salvation, Matthew 1, 21. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is our salvation. And lastly, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is the armor of God? It is Jesus Christ himself. Is this good news? Jesus Christ himself. Which if you're sitting there going, yeah, okay. But, but where does it say in the New Testament that we're to put Christ on? Well, let me just show you just two passages, okay? Galatians 3.27. All we have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes. Listen, Paul says the moment of our salvation, moment of conversion, you become united with Christ. You literally put on Christ. But it's not just a one-time deal, is it? Like so many things in the Christian life, Christian life is based on, based on a foundation, based on this solid foundation that happens once and for all, but you and I are called to live in light of that reality. So Paul says in Romans 13, 12, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Then I could go on and on and on. Putting on the armor of God is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us are sitting in a sanctuary. The church isn't a sanctuary. The only sanctuary you have is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only protection you and I have is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 18, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son protects them securely, and the evil one cannot ever touch them. Putting on Jesus, John says, keeps us from sinning. Putting on Jesus himself protects us so that the enemy cannot touch us. Now, I'm just going to give you a moment just to, just to just sit on that for a second, okay? <laughs> putting on the armor of God. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, what does that look like then? Pastor Peter, what, what does that look like? Jesus again talked about this a lot. But one of the primary ways that Jesus talked about what it means to put him on, not just once when you're saved, but every day afterwards, John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, well, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, this is paradigm shift. This is, this, this is the core foundation you need to get. Putting on the armor of God is about a relationship with the person. Let me say that again. Putting on the armor of God, Christ, is about a relationship with a person, not some mechanical prayer that you pray in the morning. Putting on Christ, putting on the armor of God, is about abiding in Jesus, Christian. It's about walking moment by moment with Christ. Surrender to him. Submit it to him. That's why James says in James 4, 7, what? Submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Putting on Christ on the armor of God is about walking moment by moment with Jesus. And when you do that, you're never without the armor of God. Think about that. You are never without the armor of God when you're walking moment by moment with Jesus. It doesn't mysteriously disappear when you go to sleep. Like we're unprotected until we wake up in the morning and we have to sort of ritually put that back on again. No, it's on you at all times. It stays clothed. You stay clothed with Christ 
constantly. What is the armor of God? It's Lord Jesus Christ. Is this good news? This is, this is amazing news. Now, the second question then, when do we put on the armor of God? Just flows right out of the insight that we've been talking about. When do we put on the armor of God? The verbs uh, throughout this passage are in the present tense, suggesting an ongoing nature of the intended action. In other words, if putting on the armor of God is a relationship with a person, then putting on the armor of God, listen, is a lifestyle you cultivate. Putting on the armor of God is a lifestyle, Christian, that you and I cultivate. Putting on the armor of God, putting on Christ is an ongoing lifestyle discipline, which is a product of days and weeks and months and years of cultivation and practice and nurture. It's not something you do like that. Let me illustrate this for you, okay? Among the armor that we have, and again, we're going to go through these individually. Paul actually focuses the most amount of time on prayer, okay? On prayer. Prayer is the most effective weapon that you want to have, actually, in spiritual warfare. And listen to how he ends this section on spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 18. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Prayer is one of the most effective ways that you and I want nurture and deepen our walk with Jesus. Prayer is one of the most effective weapons that we have to fortify, to strengthen our relationship with Jesus, to be protected against not just deceptions of the enemy, but against despair against discouragement, against hopelessness, against anger, against resentment. Prayer is like oxygen, Christian, to your lungs. It literally matter of life or death spiritually. But here's the question. Is prayer a lifestyle for you? Is prayer a lifestyle for you? When do most of us pray? Let's just be honest. When do most of us pray? When our lives are falling apart. When we need something. It's like flares going up, right? God, help! Now, he's gracious enough to hear our prayers. But most of us pray when things are falling apart. That means when things are going well, many of us, we just spiritually coast. We do. We just spiritually coast. If you're not experiencing some real tangible battles going on, you and I just spiritually coast. That means there isn't much of a prayer life. We're just really busy. By read, read screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis and how busyness is one of Satan's most effective tools to keep you deceived. Nurturing, deepening our walk with Jesus takes a back seat when things are going well. Then all of a sudden, the arrows appear in the air, right? And they got flames on them. But you and I don't have our armor on. We don't have our armor on. We've been coasting spiritually. Most of us are completely ill-equipped and ill-prepared for the battle. You don't wait, soldier, for the onset of the battle to all of a sudden go, where is that shield? Where is that sword? Where is that helmet? Because if you do, it's too late. It's too late. When do we put on the armor of God? Every single day when things are going well and when things aren't. When you have a job and you don't. When there's money in the bank and you're broke. When your family members are healthy and when they're not. Every single day, putting on the armor of God is a lifestyle you and I cultivate as an ongoing discipline, product of days and weeks and months and years of practice and cultivation. Listen, the best way for you to be prepared for any and all spiritual battle is to walk with Jesus every second, every moment of your life. What is the armor of God? The Lord Jesus himself. When do we put on the armor of God? Every waking moment. Now, 
then how then do we put on the armor of God? Again, this is paradigm shifting, okay? You got, you, got to, you got to shift the way you've been thinking about this. How then do we put on the armor of God? Again, if putting on the armor of God is putting on Christ, then each piece that we're going to go look at, each piece of the armor is a description of how we actively participate in the reality of having been clothed with Christ. In other words... Each piece of the armor is a visual aid to help us understand what a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit looks like. Let me say that again. It is a visual aid, each piece of the armor, to help us understand what a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit looks like. We're just going to talk about one today, okay? And we're just going to talk about one, the first one, because this is the most important to lay the foundation that we're going to build in the upcoming weeks. Today we're going to talk about the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, in, in King James Version, it says, having, your, having girded, your, girded your loins with. Having girded your loins with belt of truth. And I love that, and I'll tell you why. First of all, your belt was the first line of defense. And here's why. The belt was put on last, okay? But it was the most important thing. Why? Because all of your weapons as a Roman soldier was hung on them, okay? And you see the picture on your screen. See that? All of your armor, your sword, your shield, everything was put on your belt. Now, what's the deal with girding your loins? Remember, this, the, the, Roman, the Roman army was the most powerful army at the time. And they fought through every season of the year. Which means they fought during winters. When they fought during winters, they wore these thick, long robes to keep them warm. But when the battle started, what did they do? They rolled up, they girded that robe, and they tucked it under the belt. Because that means you were what? You were not ready for battle. A robe that was hanging and a belt that was untucked meant that you were not ready for battle. And Paul says what? In the unseen battle, the first line of defense is to make sure that your belt of truth, Christian, is secure. Why is that this important? Why is this so important? Because we're up against the father of what? Lies. Father of what? Deception. That's who we're dealing with. He's a one-trick pony, as we talked about. But it works because he uses it a million different ways, and we keep falling for it. We keep falling for it. Do you know why we keep falling for it? Because if you're deceived, you don't know that you're deceived. Think about it. If I tempt you, you know it. If I accuse you, you know it. But if I deceive you, you don't know it. The moment that you realize you're deceived, you're no longer deceived. And Paul says the first thing that we need to do in this battle against deception is to gird your loins with truth. The question, of course, then becomes, what is a lifestyle of putting on the belt of truth look like every single day? It's not what you think it means. I assure you. 1 John 1, 5. John says, This is a message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Psalm 51.6. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Do you know what it means to put on the belt of truth? It's not just about knowing the truth of God's word or having good, accurate theology. Let me say something that might be shocking to you. You could have incredible theology and know the Bible inside out and still be deceived, Christian. How many times have you seen high-profile Christian leaders who have read their Bible hundreds of times and a theology and accuracy that is unmatched fall in moral sin. This is why James says, don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourself. He says what? Do what it says. You know what putting on the belt of truth is? Putting on the belt of truth is what John says when he says, walk 
in the light, not in the darkness. And what David says when he says, you desire truth in the inward being. It doesn't mean being sinless. Here's what it means. Putting on the belt of truth is being honest and truthful with God, with yourself, and with others. Putting on the belt of truth is being honest and truthful with God, with yourself, and with others. As unfancy as this sounds, putting on the belt of truth is not just about knowing the truth. It's about having the truth. And we'll talk about that, by the way, when we get to the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. It is important having the Word of God in our minds and knowing good theology. But putting on the belt of truth is not just knowing it and saying it, it's living it. It's living it. How? By being honest with God, with yourself, and with others. How many people do you know, Christian, who you know are bound, enslaved, and deceived because they are either unwilling or they can't be honest with God, with themselves, and with others? Are you honest with God, with yourself, with others? When Jesus saw Nathanael in John 1, he says about him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Every single Christian, the watching world, ought to say that about us. There goes a man or woman of integrity. No deceit. No hypocrisy. That's what it means to put on the belt of truth. Are you being honest with God? Are you being honest with yourself? Are you being honest with others? You know what I've noticed? Because I've pastored people who come out of 12-step programs. Do you know what I've noticed about people who come out of 12-step programs? People who ultimately break free from addictions, they break free when they're sick and tired of living a lie. When they get sick and tired of living a lie. They get tired of sneaking around and hiding. They get tired of being so scared of that that somebody might find out what they're doing. And there's no freedom there. There's bondage. Bondage to the lie itself. And when they finally break free, they overcome one of the major spiritual hurdles, which is what? They get honest with themselves about where they are. The lying is over with. That's why in 12 step programs, you'll meet some of the most honest people you'll ever meet. Matter of fact, I grieve the fact that church communities are far from being that honest, far from being that transparent. Once you become honest, once the sham is finally over with, why, why, why bother? Why, why, why put up a front? And there's healing, there's transparency, there's vulnerability, there's freedom. You want to stand firm? You want to put on both the truth? Stop living a lie. Stop living a lie. You're playing right into the enemy's traps. So let me ask you these questions, three questions as we close. Are you being honest with God? Are you being honest with God, Christian? Do you know why David was a man after God's own heart? It wasn't because he was sinless. I mean, his biography is there for all of us to see. The reason why he was a man after God's own heart was when David was confronted with his sin, it broke him. After his sin with Bathsheba, he first did what we all do, denial, blame shifting, cover up. Because when we see the truth about ourselves, it's painful because it's ugly. It takes a lot of courage to face up to reality. It's way easier for us to go into denial, point the finger at someone else. It's him, it's there, my wife, my husband, it's the church, it's the pastor. But when David was confronted by Nathan, Nathan prophet Nathan, when Nathan helped David to see the truth, it broke David's heart. And we have a record of his repentance in Psalm 51, but I see some of the fruit of his repentance in Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, you see that David learned to keep short accounts with God, and he learned that knowing the truth, knowing the truth, knowing the truth, even if it's painful, is the way, the only way to freedom. And he prayed this prayer. 
which I hope you and I will pray every single day, every single day, if you want to wear the belt of truth and walk in honesty with God. Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me, God, in the way of everlasting. Pray this prayer every single day. And when God speaks, listen. The thing about God is he will not speak in vague condemnations. That's the enemy. You're a bad person. You need to be a better parent. You're not enough. God's conviction is never vague and general and leads you away from God. God's conviction is specific. He'll point out specific things. It's about him, her, that thing. And God's conviction of the Holy Spirit will always draw you towards God, not away from him. And when you and I stop, get really honest with God and come clean, you will not meet a cosmic cop who's waiting to just smash you. You will, lead a you will meet a loving, forgiving, heavenly Father who is full of grace and mercy, who wants to forgive you, heal you, redeem you, and restore you. But that only happens when you and I are honest, when we're willing to put on the belt of truth and live with honesty and humility. And when we do, something beautiful, something beautiful happens it's painful but something beautiful happens when we go honestly before god you know what it's called it's called brokenness brokenness is when you're finally honest with god and you meet god a god of compassion and a god of mercy psalm 34 18 the lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit brokenness i'm telling you is where we meet god and experience his compassion and his fatherly love are you being honest with god being honest and truthful with god enables the following two things second is are you honest with yourself are you honest with yourself they have a saying in aa those who do not recover are people who are incapable of being honest with themselves in other words, you can only heal what you're able to reveal. Denial kills. Denial kills. Living in denial kills. You want to be emotionally healthy. You want to be emotionally healthy. With honesty comes the hope of healing and freedom. And you don't have to convince addicts of these truths. The only way to move forward in healing, to live a life of fullness, is to be fully honest with who you are, honest with where you've been, and honest with what you're capable of. Brené Brown talks about the power of owning our stories. If we own our story, then we get to write the ending. If we don't own our story, the story writes the ending for us. And it's painful to own our story. That's why very few of us do it. We'd rather be in denial. We'd rather pretend. But that's why generational sin exists. Because families will not own the family story. I'm going to say that some of you, some of you listening to me right now, the generational sin will stop with you. It'll stop with you because you will have the courage to say no more. We're going to be honest about where we've been. We're not going to hide. We're not going to let the story write the ending for us. No, we're going to write the ending. And just real quick, think about this collectively for this country as a whole when it comes to the evil of racism. Think about it. Being honest about our story is what is required for racial healing. I'm telling you. The story of America is a lie. The lie of white supremacy. We all agree to the lie and deception of racial hierarchy. And we will never be free as a country. We will never be free from the demonic principality of racism unless we get honest and truthful about who we are, about where we've been, and what we've done. You can only heal what you're able to reveal. You could only heal what you're able to do. And lastly, are you honest with others? Are you honest with other people? Secrecy kills. Secrecy kills. Secrecy kills. That's why you hear that voice, even right now from the enemy going, you can't tell anybody. 
What will they think of you? They're going to think you're the worst person. They're going to think you're gross. They're going to think you're a pervert. They're going to think you're such a terrible, terrible. And what happens? What happens? Satan dwells in the domain of shadows and secrets. God lives in the land of light and honesty. Bring your problems out into the open. And the moment that you tell somebody that power of secrecy, isolation is broken and there's freedom. This is why you've heard me say this a ton. When somebody who doesn't know you all that well says, man, I really like you. You feel pretty good. You feel pretty good. But when somebody who knows you intimately, knows everything about you says, you are one of the finest people I've ever met, you weep. Do you know why? Because it's hitting something in you that God put, which is you were created to be fully known and fully loved without any fear of rejection. And when that part of you gets touched, because another human being sees you in all of your ugly messiness and says, I accept you, I love you, there is healing. That's why James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other, not just to God, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Healing happens when a guy who struggled with addictions confesses to someone confess to someone after years and years and years out of fear of rejection not confessing to anybody shares with someone in other words he is no longer living in darkness but walking in the light he's walking in the light he's bringing it out into the open in confession and finds healing healing because those shackles of condemnation guilt finally get broken and you're set free you're set free because you're saying I'm not going to walk in darkness anymore. I'm going to walk in the light. I'm going to walk in truth and transparency. If there's one person on planet Earth that you can be real and honest with, you are the most blessed person. But here's the amazing news. You can always be honest with God. Always. Belt of truth. Are you honest with God? Are you honest with yourself this morning? And are you honest with others? Pray with me. In a moment, we're going to be participating in communion. And as we come to the table today, the question before us is, are you deceived? Or are you wearing the belt of truth in being real and honest? with God. We're going to pray this prayer, Psalm 139, 23. You're going you're gonna to see it on the screen. You're going to see it on the screen. Psalm 139, 23. Before you prepare to take communion, I want you to pray this prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. God, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that prayer. God, as far as I know, I think I'm okay with you, God. As far as I know, I think I'm okay with others. But God, I might be deceived. I might be in denial. So I need the power of your Holy Spirit to show me, reveal to me, and open my eyes. And open my eyes. And give you a moment to do that. Give you a moment to do that as we prepare our hearts to take communion this morning.